0: Maybe five years ago, a patient of mine said, hey, uh, he, he started working with, he, you know, you're a kaizen. Have you ever heard of the term kaizen? He said, read the book. It's a Japanese philosophy. I googled it and it's a philosophy that uh, continuous small improvements can reap major benefits, major improvements. And it's a Japanese cultural thing and a philosophy where like companies such as Toyota embrace this concept. And as I read them, I'm like, I totally agree with that, you know, like, um, It's it's all about not accepting the status quo and to setting yourself to continuous improvement.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Happy Practice Playbook. I'm Mo Jones, and in each episode of the show, you'll hear conversations with dentists, office managers, staff, and specialists who know how to create a happy practice. Today, we're joined by Dr. Matt Najad, an expert biomimetic and aesthetic dentist, as well as a fellow of the Academy of Biomimetic Dentistry. He also provides education and training through the Najad Institute for Biomimetic Dentistry and is also a dental advisor for the Birdie Medical Review Board. Dr. Najad, welcome to the show today.
0: Thank you. I'm really excited to be here and talk about my practice in dentistry.
1: I am very excited too. And it's really exciting because we are going over a topic that we haven't talked about on the show today, which I think our listeners will be very interested and gain a lot of insightful knowledge for. So we're in for a really good ride today. So everyone buckle up. (laughs) Awesome. All right. So of course, we always start our podcast with a little statistic. Today, um, our statistic is compared to one year ago, 69% 69% of clinics say they have less time to spend helping patients because staff is occupied with other tasks. Have you seen this in your experience?
0: Oh, yes, of course. So I've been a practice owner since the day I graduated, actually. I graduated 2010, and I knew that type of dentistry I wanted to do, you needed to be in control of a lot of different things, the quality, the setup, the materials. So I started my own office and I realized really fast that we have to juggle a lot of different responsibilities. And what we really want to do is focus on making our dentistry better. Like I I want to spend every hour I can improving my craft, reading the science, practicing things, you know, getting it more efficient. But you have to deal with HR and human resources and insurance and all these things. So I've been through a... 12 solid years of learning and streamlining things to try to carve out more and more time to spend with patients. And I can totally understand and uh, relate to how it's impossible to do some things. In fact, we're expected to do some things by either law or OSHA that are almost impossible. Like it's just so hard to micromanage every single aspect. It's it's really in favor of the big DSOs because they can have like the systems, the efficiency, everything in place. When and when you're smaller, it's just hard to be able to wear 10 different hats like that. So it's it's you know, it's a fact. This is a true, true thing we're facing.
1: That seems super daunting to start a practice straight out of graduation. So what what helped you get started with that?
0: Well, help me get started is a few things. One is opportunity wasn't there. And instead of taking what I had available, I decided to create my own opportunity. You know, it's it's like I, I realized I had a great mentor. He taught me this type of dentistry that is really catered towards quality and spending more time. It's really a fee for service type of product, but it's very rare to find a job opportunity, an associate position, et cetera, that would give you that amount of time and flexibility. So I had to, but I wasn't scared of it. And I also realized from a a little bit, probably about like five years prior to that, I realized everything is an excuse. There's a lot of reasons we make up excuses and put up hurdles and say, I'm not ready yet. And I figured I'll learn as I go. And it was a small office and I knew that I could manage it in a digestible way. I was literally seeing a morning patient and an afternoon. It was like an extension of dental school. I considered it Like my residency, I'm gonna start with two patients a day. Learn how to run. I learned how to do insurance on my own, and I became very good at it. I had one employee, but I learned all the things. You know, I I devoted the time to learn things because I also have seen if you don't know how to do something, it's very hard to hire talent to do it. You know, and that's why it's easy to make a lot of mistakes, be very inefficient, or not know better because a lot of dentists and doctors don't know how to either build insurance or how to use their practice management software. And you have to be able to be comfortable with all those different things. So I did it because I had to, basically. And I don't regret it at all. And I think that it kind of one step leads to the other. And you get further and further by facing these fears and eliminating obstacles and hurdles.
1: So little by little. And did you ever feel any setbacks when you had those small goals and you weren't able to necessarily meet them all right? 100% every time?
0: Yeah, there's numerous times where so I set I set realistic goals for myself. You know, it it was like, I want to grow. I want to be I want to have patients recognizing my differentiation. I want to leave insurance networks eventually, you know, so I set them Digestibly, and what I would do is periodically be looking at things, whether it be the numbers, or patient satisfaction, or scheduling, or whatever, and keep adjusting. You have to make like little mid-course adjustments as you go, so that you can kind of steer towards that path. You you won't get there by mistake. And everyone thinks it's like luck when you end up somewhere, but it's a series of uh, decisions and hard work. There's a saying that I love: "It's the harder you work, the luckier you get." But It's all about the fact that you are creating your luck and you're putting the time into it. So for me, when I had these setbacks, I took a step back. And instead of saying, look, it's not working, I had to figure out what to do. One random example of that was I was making a website and the website was going really well and it was getting some patience in. I this was at a time when Instagram was becoming very popular. And I'm like, that's that's not for dentistry. That's just for, you know, sharing photos. I almost missed that whole bandwagon, But then I realized, you know what, it looks like a lot of people are really getting known and being discovered through that. So I I, I went back, I had decided I'm not going to waste my time on Instagram. And I totally decided I need to change that. Because after I looked at everything, I'm like, you know, website is amazing. But Instagram is kind of what uh, future generations are using to look for their content. They're not necessarily searching on the web. Sometimes they're going on Instagram, and just looking at before and afters and cosmetic procedures and stuff like that. So I adjusted.
1: So looking at where we can improve and what needs to change versus where we went wrong what is what helped you, right?
0: Yes, and systems and efficient, you know, so that and then establishing the systems that keep us moving in the right direction.
1: Have there been any particular systems that you have fa- um, found the most helpful from when you started to your pre- present day?
0: Yeah, so I'm huge on systems. My parents are engineers and I see everything as trainable. I've had numerous instances in my career where a trusted staff, like later in my career, I have multiple employees. So I started with one and now we have 12. I've had a certain employee who's a a good, uh, she has my best interests in mind and she'll say things like so-and-so can't learn or this is how they are. And I don't believe it. I'm like everyone, you know, it's all about training experience and systems, you know, anybody everybody can improve. Okay, there's a bare minimum, I think everybody can improve, especially if you believe in them and set the right system. So setting systems was amazing for me. Um, I'm always trying to work on that. And one of the biggest ones was freeing up our time with insurance, we decided to go into fee for service, because we wanted to spend more time with our patients, as you said, like 69% of did you say it was 69% of time is spent on non patient activities?
1: they have 69% or 69% they had less time to spend helping patients. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. So, um, whatever the amount of time that goes into, it it feels like almost 69% of the time does go into non-patient related activity, but being able to free up some of that time, with insurance being on the phone um, specifically, we started using Weave in 2013. So I graduated 2010. I was an early adopter with Weave. I saw the benefit. We had we had internet so slow that you could barely use it, but we managed to get DSL barely meet the requirements. Then a few years later, fiber. We were onboarded by one of the owners. Like literally, I was dealing with yeah, one of the owners, and um, people told me about that later. So. Um, the phone systems and we even text messaging and automating things really helped us a lot. And also spending less time on the phone, they go hand in hand, but minimizing how much time we have to spend on the phone, especially with non patient related inquiries like insurance. So when we went fee for service over a series of years, that's freed up a lot of our time. So now when we are on the phone, we're dealing with an actual patient related to scheduling their treatment or following up with them. So it's higher value activities.
1: Okay. So this fee for service concept that you've adopted for our listeners that may not know what that is. Can you explain what that means and what it looks like?
0: Yeah. So in a fee for service setting, we are billing the insurance or courtesy submitting to the insurance for our patients. We're charging upfront. So I remember this, there was a time where I decided we should be charging at the time of scheduling, I'm putting a large amount of time for these procedures up to three hours. Um, And you know, like a quadrant of dentistry might be like three hour appointment. And very frequently, it is two, three hours. And if the patient doesn't show up, I'm dedicated to seeing that one patient, you know, so that's a huge problem for me. So I said, I want to charge ahead of time. And I remember at that particular moment, my staff was like, oh, people are going to be so mad and they're not going to want to do that. I'm like, well, why? It's like, if you don't want to do it, don't schedule. And if you do, you know, make sure that you're reserving that time and you have this sort of like uh, sense of there's a commitment. So um, we did it and they said, it's going to go, it's not going to go well. And it went perfectly. It's been five or six years since then, you know, like we've, it's become so normal. We've created that culture of, We value our time. We also value your time. So we set aside a lot of time to work on patients, one patient at a time. We um, do charge at the beginning of treatment. We are very true to what we promise and we deliver. We have a very high satisfaction rate. If something's not right, we fix it. And we focus on treating our patients, being able to interact with them and talk to them and not feel like you have a rushed, uh, a rushed experience because a lot of anxiety from treatment comes from this sort of like, you know, multiple chair, high speed type of dentistry and that's not for everybody. I do think that that type of dentistry is very important to to fill a role that's required because not every patient wants what I'm offering, but there's plenty of patients that do want that and that's what fee for service is really ideal for because you're not limited by Things such as the insurance fees or having to deal with if my insurance covers it, we've created the culture of, look, I'm telling you the truth. And this is what I recommend. And my patients fully believe my treatments and some of it's elective and some of it is more urgent due to like cavities, fractures, etc. And so there is some portions that are, you know, delayed or not, um, done but when we recommend something it's very rare that they have to say something like i gotta check my insurance because even though they have insurance they're not here for that they're here for an elevated level of care
1: so with this fee for service concept and you have it helps create an elevated experience for your patients and be able to give them the time and services they that they need but what are some of the roadblocks that comes with running a fee for service practice as well
0: Well, the first roadblock is creating and demonstrating that value. And and I've seen that numerous times that, you know, everyone does crowns, inlays, onlays, fillings, okay? And there's definitely a difference between the level of care and the quality. But the most important aspect in getting a uh, group or volume of patients that are interested in fee-for-service dentistry is demonstrating that value. And that that can come from your personality, it can come from the results. Um, Ideally, it would come from a little bit of both of them, because that's the best package. It can also come from the practice, I feel like the most common thing people focus on is the practice looking beautiful having like like this type of setting, but it's become too common for beautiful practices to also be part of insurance and all these things. So um, there's it's a differentiator, it's standing out. And so creating that type of following. So I had started my first office in a blue collar neighborhood that was heavily insurance driven. Over the f- three to four, the first three years for sure, I had already transitioned. I think by my second year, I was leaving most insurance networks except for the best reimbursing ones. And I was maybe losing a few patients that weren't there for that. So the, the attrition that you have when you start to switch, it's scary. But I'm like, you know what, you got to go down to go up sometimes. And I just started working at it, building it up, watching the numbers. But it went down a little bit and started coming back up. And there was a period where I was doing less dentistry, but making more because I was able to charge, you know, like there was a time where my filling had to be $80 for something. And I was able to get it up to like 250 or $300. This is back in 2011, 12. And so I might be doing less fillings, but being able to do them at a higher fee. So the roadblock is knowing that you may lose some patients, knowing that it doesn't happen overnight. Every time I do like a lecture or a course, there's all these young dentists kind of asking me, how do you get to do what you're doing? And I'm like, "It's, it's a process. It's a work in process. You're always in progress. You're always working on getting there you think they see like i'm where they want to be but i'm where i am now but not where i want to be i'm still working on getting to that destination so the roadblock i think is that it doesn't happen overnight and it takes time to develop but you're investing your time and when you look back at it i don't think you would regret it because it's freeing up your ability to do more of the type of work you want to do and that's what we're all really after
1: So as someone who has a lot of experience in this, and you mentioned that it's going to be normal to lose patients and kind of see a decrease. Is there a specific number where it's where it's like, hey, you've decreased way too much and you need to change something needs to change on how you're going about this?
0: I don't think there's a specific number, but obviously, unless you're prepared for it, you don't want to be dipping below your overhead costs, you know, so like at the bottom as your overhead, you got to look at your staff, rent, supplies, materials, all that stuff. And you have to probably, if you're already hovering at that number, let's say you're starting from an insurance model and you're already hovering there, which is which is the reality these days. There's, you know, my my dad uh is remarried and he his wife is a dentist and they just bought a practice. It's not profitable right now. And it's HMO and insurance, and they have to get to profit first. So right now they're covering based on their loans and projections. A period of growth. So, depending on where you are, if you're very profitable, you have a lot of room. But your bottom line is, you know, your overhead, including a reasonable salary for yourself. Um, doesn't have to be your dream salary, but just, you know, your bottom bottom line, what you can cover your living expenses with. So, if you start approaching that rapidly, and and my also my advice always is. Don't just cold turkey go like I I eliminated some of the you know, this is what people do you eliminate some of the networks that have the worst reimbursement and you start playing it by ear you start building up more patients that um, are here for fee for service so you start seeing okay now I can drop this one and that one you have to go little by little, there'll be a period that I think everyone will describe as awkward where you're like, you're actually bummed when a patient has insurance or is in network because you're able to do you have to do the exact same thing. For a fraction of the cost. So, but we all go through that. I did that too. At the time I did it, um, like for example, Delta Premier was paying pretty good. That was actually my target to bring all my fee for service to that level. So it was easier back then because I was like, okay, I'm just going to bring everything to this. If the insurance pays that much, great. At the time, nothing was paying like that did in my area. I was in an area that had um, a the school district had Delta Premier and it worked out well. So you have to set the target and you're not going to set your fee to what you want it to be 10 years from now, or you're not going to set it to your dream fee, but you transition to it and then you raise it. And I also noticed that when people value your work, they're not going to, like, there's so many times where you raise your fees and you're afraid that everyone's going to run away. I mean, of course, if you go from like $500 to $5,000, they're going to run away. But when you go from five to 600, a fee for service patient isn't like, oh my God, it's 600. you know what I mean? There, it's the price sensitivity isn't within the five or 10% range. It's when things double or triple that they start to become really sensitive to that. So as you go, you raise your prices little by little when you feel like your schedule's busy. Because the way I think about it, time's the most valuable thing we have. And if I'm busy with my time, I'm not trying to like at one point, I was trying to get more and more patients and stay till eight o'clock at night and work myself to the ground. But now I want to work 40 hours, maybe 45 hours a week. It's not uh, a low amount of dentistry, but I want to constantly be adjusting to provide uh, reimbursement for my, my effort and time that is consistent with how I value my time.
1: Hey, and I think another thing that maybe our listeners would really benefit from, how did you start having those conversations with your patients as you were transitioning from, you know, taking their insurance to the fee for service?
0: Yeah, so um, I, first of all, I kept that one, the, the, I kept one or two, I know Premier, and I think there was one other Blue Cross one, like the gold level or something like that, that did well. I started to tell patients ahead of time, we sent a letter that we're going to be leaving the insurance network, we don't feel like we're able to provide the quality we want at these reimbursements, we're still happy to have you as a patient, and we will still submit it for you. However, we will be charging you and reimbursements will come to you. Um, I actually, this has been years, so I'm remembering there was actually a period where we would right in between doing that, before we said that we would uh, have them pay fully, we would estimate their insurance premium, we would take it from the insurance, they would pay the difference with the out of network fee, but we would tell them they're responsible. So the letter wasn't like you're going to pay us fully, it was, you will be responsible for any portion your insurance doesn't cover. So that was step one, where we would still deal with insurance. But now we were freed from the ceiling or the price that they would pay. And we were also somewhat freed from, they might not cover an inlay. They might say that we're going to pay you for a filling because, you know, insurance oftentimes would see an inlay as something that is going to be downgraded to like a, either an amalgam filling or a composite filling. So we were freed from those things and we would tell the patients that in the letter, but I'd also tell them that when they were in the chair, I feel like communication is key and i saw this like quote the other day and i shared it with all my staff i don't remember exactly how it went but it was something along the lines of it's better to say something 10 times and over communicate than under communicate and that's what i do like when i talk to patients i'll say what what's covered what's not covered how the process works more than once sometimes i had staff members tell me that you know maybe you should keep it a little shorter but i'm like but our case acceptance is high People feel like they trust me. I don't think so. You know, like I think the natural reaction to most people is to keep things too succ- succinct, too brief when people feel more comfort in uh, repetition.
1: So in that, right, you're giving that repetition, repetition, not only with that letter that you sent, but also when in the chair. How did you extend that training to your staff so that they could continue to reiterate that and inform the patient when they check in and even when they check out?
0: Yeah. uh, Well, at my first office, it was like 800 square feet. And so the chair, like if I'm sitting right here, the front office was where that picture is behind me. So I could hear what they would say, whether I'm working like, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I have one assistant and one front desk. Now I could hear and I would constantly review, okay, review what they're saying, work on the verbiage and stuff like that to try to train that this is one of those things. I mean, when I say it's very hard to be like, amazing at everything. So systems right now we have scripts, we have training, we have FAQs that the staff can reference, but it's still a work in progress. That's one of the hardest things to be able to control what people say or train how to, you know, react to these, but I was listening to it. I even had a service. This was before Weave was around 2010, 2011. At least I believe that's the case because I don't think it was here, but I had a service. I think it was called call measurement or something but it would do recording the calls and it would do some um, you could put like a dynamic phone number on your website and then so not only do you get where they're calling from where they found you like it helps you see they came from the website or they came from this and then it recorded them so I would listen to them and now I don't have time for that we have that feature in weave and every now and then we use the recordings for quality control, if there's any patient issue or someone says we didn't say something, very valuable. But at the beginning, it just had to be by devoting some time to that. Otherwise, you have to find someone to train and do all those things. But that's a really difficult thing to do.
1: Have you, did you ever feel in incorporating all this and putting on mini hats? So not only doing your fee for service concept, but also being a practice owner straight from graduation, that it affected your patient experience.
0: I didn't let it affect my practice experience because I was putting in extra hours. And I've, I know a few people that get burned out from that type of thing. Um, one of my, uh, good friends and business partners talks about this topic a lot on the burnout and the uh, stress from dentistry. And, uh, th- that's Kyle Stanley. And he was a business partner, is a business partner. And, um, you can see how you have to be, to some degree, it's hard to balance these things. I don't have a great balance in some ways, but I'm working on that now. I was very committed to the profession and I still am, but it becomes where I was doing a lot of the things like training after hours or making notes so I could review it the next morning. It's hard to do nine to five with that. So I figured it in investment phase. You know, When you start a career, Also, one of the reasons why doing it early was amazing, you know, imagine you work somewhere for five years, six years, then you go open an office, we lose energy, like I I definitely noticed that I'm uh, craving more free time, and trying to make my systems fall in place and make things more automated or more efficient. But At that time, when you're right out of school, first few years, you have the energy, it's still part of your investment. I think it's a really good thing to try to do it early and get it going rather than delaying it, because if you if you do it during business hours, yes, it'll affect your patient experience. If you can do it after hours, no. And if you have tools that streamline it, it becomes very valuable, including the recordings, because before recordings, what would you do? You'd have to maybe dedicate a little bit of time to overhear or or, you know, I'm gonna spend this morning listening to how you handle calls and kind of give you some feedback. But with recordings, you free up the ability to do that um, at different times, and that was really beneficial.
1: So you really literally kind of hit the ground running and you had that momentum knowing that there may have been some there was going to be a few days, not even days, probably a little some time where you were spending yep. extra time and effort. But yep. now as you've done it, you have you have the free time and flexibility and full balance that you wanted in the beginning, right?
0: I'm I'm it's that's a work in progress. I have much more of it than before. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. at some point the dream becomes maybe three or four days a week of dentistry everyone says five days of dentistry is too much right now i don't really have a choice in the sense that i don't think we would meet our goals and be able to i I would have to downsize and i value my team and i don't want to do that i could be comfortable doing a little bit less but i'd rather create more opportunity so it's a process and i definitely noticed okay so about maybe past six months, I started talking to my staff going, Hey, we're we're not staying till seven o'clock anymore. We used to have to to like stay till seven to not work on patients, but to do the treatment plan, review the wax ups, the restorations, all that stuff. I'm like, what's happened? We're busier than before. And we're leaving at five o'clock now, you know, and it was all those years, several years of setting things up systems treatment coordinator, things are running more efficient, it didn't happen like a light switch it happens steadily. So that like, I was kind of like, Oh, maybe seven became 645 became 630 became six. It's like things are running smoother. And we're not slower than before in in terms of like patient care or treatment. It's just systems kick in. And I just want to keep that going, actually, you know, and I want to extend it to having opportunities for other dentists to work for me in an environment where they can do this type of dentistry, because it's such a rare thing to be able to do a high level of dentistry without pressure from insurance and being, um, you know, basically pressured into doing faster and more treatment and over treating and stuff like that.
1: So one thing that you have mentioned uh, a lot is that a work in progress. Do you think having that mindset of having a work in progress is what allowed you to be continually successful versus, all right, this is my end goal. I'm here. I'm good.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So that's, uh, it's interesting you say that because. Maybe five years ago, a patient of mine said, hey, uh, he he started working with us a little bit on social media stuff. And he had a good eye for that. And he's like, hey, hey, you know, you're a Kaizen. Have you heard of the term Kaizen? Have you you personally? Either had I. I. I, I, He said, read read the book. He said, (laughs) read the book. It's a Japanese philosophy. I Googled it. And it's a philosophy that Uh, continuous small improvements can reap major benefit, major improvements. And it's a Japanese cultural thing and a philosophy where like companies such as Toyota embrace this concept. And it's this whole concept that there's like these 10 commandments of Kaizen and it's like good enough is never good enough. Don't accept excuses, make it happen. If something, um, just because something works, ask if it can be improved, you know, like there's all these different, uh, principles and as i read them i'm like i totally agree with that you know like um it's it's all about not accepting the status quo and to setting yourself to continuous improvement so from that day i embraced that i said that is what i am and i also remember that even though i talk about it now like it's it's always been part of me i remember dreaming of reaching x point where i'm like ah oh, finally okay now i can relax but it's not really like that it's, it's when you reach that point, like I said, it's a work in progress, you see that there, there's more to do. But I also try to take one step back and realize, I've gotten to where I wanted to get. And now I have new goals. But I have to be appreciative that I am accomplishing them. Otherwise, it feels like it's never ending. And that you're like, never achieving your goal. I am, I'm just constantly adjusting my goal. Because I'm in this, uh, I'm in this mentality that, if you stop trying to improve, you definitely will. That That's a fact. The minute you decide I'm going to stop, that's when you do. But otherwise, there is no like peak, you know, like there's a saying that um, if you chase perfection, you can catch excellence. And that's because if you keep improving, you can actually get to uh, the best version of yourself. And there's all these quotes that I love about that. But I that approach and what you had mentioned fit together where it's like you have to embrace that. If you're trying to be either the best at what you do or to get better at what you do, it's just a work in progress.
1: So as you were explaining this concept, I kind of a light bulb moment that I feel like is like a duh, right? Where we're constantly making these tiny improvements. But I think about just myself when I was 21 versus now. It's, you know, yeah, I may have met a goal, but now my life's in a different place, just how, you know, technology and time is a different place. So there's new things to improve upon and to adjust to, uh, you know, even just ma- uh, manage and fit in the world today with the flow. And so I think that goes with that same concept of we can have these goals and they're great, but there will always be improvements because our lives are changing. We're in- changing. You know, we're different people from we're 21 to 31 and the world, the world is changing at at an exponential pace too. And so we have to change and adjust so that we can keep up with the times essentially, right?
0: Yeah. When you make a goal, you're, you're making a goal for the future based on what you know now, but when you get there, you know, different things. And I've seen that a lot. And a small example of that is when I was young, I truly believed I wanted to have kids and be married by age 30. When 26 came around, I'm like, holy crap, there's so much to do and there's so little time and I can't imagine doing all that. And, you know, so you ask myself at 20, I'm like, that is my goal of success, actually. Like, if I don't have, if I'm not married with kids at 30, I'm going to be an old father type thing. And I, I, when I got there, like, I don't feel old and I don't feel ready. So I'm going to adjust my expectations, you know, and that's just one personal example. But it's kind of, you know, when, I, I've noticed that when you think of the future. It's very hard to know how the future is going to unfold. So you're thinking about it with what you know today, but over the next five years, you learn so much stuff over five or 10 years where it's very hard to be that accurate. But what is accurate is the direction you're headed. You're going in the direction of whether it's improving your quality of life, your income, your practice, your success. As long as you're working towards it, you make those little mid-course adjustments to keep you moving.
1: So course correction in the direction you're going is essential, is essential to, the, to the goals that you make for yourself.
0: <laughs> yeah. You can't be stubborn on those things. If something's not working, you got to, you know, like I have examples all the time where people say, oh, like this isn't working. I'm like, okay, well, what can we do? You know, in my office, I'm known as this is how, or "The the solution is, but there's people that say the problem is they start the sentence with, it's an excuse. This cannot be done because of this, this, and this. I'm like no, but this is how we do it, because I'm not going to accept that that is the limitation, I'm going to try to find a way around it, even if the way around it means, let's say the patient has to come back, or that we have to remake something, it doesn't matter, you know, you can't focus on excuses, you got to like, really put your mind on how do we get to where we need to get whatever that is, is what we got to do.
1: So it's, it's the same, uh, same thing we're looking at. It's just a different perspective. We view it as a problem versus viewing it as where here's our solution and how we're going to fix it. Yep. Very focused
0: on that. Yep. Very focused on that.
1: Well, we are almost out of time. So we like to leave our listeners with a motivational tip. So if you could have listeners take one page out of your playbook of success, what would it be?
0: There's no better time than now. If you have these goals people are always waiting for a better opportunity, you have to put your mind to it, get working on it now, because like I said, it doesn't happen fast. It takes time and time is the most valuable asset. So you need to really get past all those excuses and get started with it now, because when you look back, no matter where you're starting now, if you put time into something, you're always going to be happy with that investment.
1: put time into it now and it's not going to happen overnight but you will see that investment as you go awesome well that is a wrap for today thank you so much for being with us Dr. Najad it has been an absolute pleasure
0: my pleasure as well this was awesome
1: yes and thank you to everyone listening don't forget to join the happy practice playbook Facebook group where we'll be discussing this topic more and sharing other helpful resources to help you keep your people happy As always, I'll be posting to get all of your tips and tricks as well. If you liked what you heard today, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on the next episode. We hope you'll join us next time. It's your girl, Mo Jones.